Welcome, Redemption. Great to see you guys this morning. It was uh, several years ago, I was reading a biography of a pastor, and there was this kind of throwaway sentence in the biography, and it basically said that at the time that this pastor was living in the 1700s, that they would have received as much news in their lifetime as we receive in one day now. Think about all the ways that we get news, whether it's through social media or it's through cable news or it's from a friend. We're hearing constantly about what's happening in the world, which can be an exciting and a good thing, but it can also be a super troubling thing. Think about the things that you know that are happening in the world that are horrible right now. We know about a war going on in Israel. We know about a war going on in Ukraine. We know about every school shooting that happens in this country and across the world. And you could name a hundred other things that I didn't just mention that are troubling to you. And so, because of this sort of sociological phenomenon of the availability of news and the fact that the world's always the way that it has been, a troubling and anxiety-producing place, there is an epidemic in our society, but not just in our society, in our own souls, of feeling this constant low-level anxiety that we don't know what to do with. And so this morning, we're going to hear Jesus say to us, listen, I've always known all the news. I've always known everything that's happening. I have an elevated perspective. I know the depths of the human heart I know things that you don't even know about how bad things have gotten. And here's what I'm telling you. Don't let your heart be troubled. And Jesus gives us three reasons in this text that we are to not let ourselves follow the pattern of this world and drift into this place of anxiety He's giving us reasons to fight, and he gives us these three glorious truths. The first one is that Jesus is preparing a place. Look with me at John 14, verses 1 through 4. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. So this is coming at an incredibly important time for the disciples, because in the last couple chapters, Jesus has been telling his disciples troubling news. He's been telling them about 
his impending hour. They don't exactly know what he's talking about, but we know, as we flip a few pages in the Gospel of John, that he's talking about his impending death, his death on a cross. And he's looking at them, and he's saying, even though this is about to happen, I want your hearts to be in a place of peace. Which is really interesting because twice over the last chapter and a half, Jesus has revealed his heart to his disciples and he has told them something that they would have been shocked by. He has said, my soul is troubled. Now, why the discrepancy there? Why is he telling us and his disciples, don't let your soul be troubled, but why is he saying that his soul is troubled? It's because what we fear most, which is, even if we don't put the words to it, separation from perfect goodness found in God alone. What we fear is being rejected, put off, left aside, by God, alienated. Jesus' soul is troubled because he is about to be alienated from God on our behalf. He is about to take on the sin of the world. All the brokenness of the world that we are anxious about is the result of sin, and it deserves to be punished. And Jesus took on that punishment himself. And so he's looking into the future and he's saying, my soul is troubled because I'm about to do something about this. But your souls do not need to be troubled because you are not going to be part of the solution. You're not taking on the sin and brokenness of the world. And as a result of Jesus' finished work on the cross, he's saying, then I'm going to the right hand of my Father, and I am going to prepare a place for you. Even though you deserve to be cut off and shut out because of your imperfection and sin, Jesus is saying, there's this giant mansion. I want you to picture it right now. And there are tons of rooms in this house. And one of the things that I am going to do after I raise from death and ascend to the right hand of my father is I've got your bedroom picked out and I am going to prepare that place for you. And here's how it's going to happen. I'm going to go to that mansion. I'm going to prepare the room And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. So one of the reasons that our heart cannot be troubled is because Jesus has this plan, this rescue plan. Part of the reason that we have anxiety in this world is because this is not our home. This is not the place that we were meant to dwell. And Jesus says, yes, I have a mission for you in this life, but it makes sense that there is this anxiety in your soul because you are homesick. But know 
that this is not where you will always be. I'm preparing a place for you. As I was reading this text this week, I was thinking back to when my family and I moved to the Twin Cities six and a half years ago. And we bought kind of a fixer-upper house, did some things to it, and my kids were living with my parents at the time. And so my wife Melissa and I were going back and forth between Ames, Iowa, and the Twin Cities. And one of the things that we were doing was we wanted to make sure that our kids felt like when they walked into the house that it was done. It was finished. And I'll never forget, partly because I got it on video, my twin daughters, Ari and Hazel, they were three at the time, walking into their basement bedroom. And we had like their comforters set up and we had their dresser set up. We had their clothes in their drawers. We had their shoes and this little pouch on the back of the door. And I'll never forget them walking in and just being so delighted that we had gotten everything done for them. And they were like, oh my goodness, this is my bed. This is my bed. This is where I'm going to sleep. And, and I remember Aria saying, like, look, it's my sparkly shoes. Like she couldn't believe, how did those get from Iowa to Minnesota? They're here. Here's how it happened. Melissa and I did all the work and they got all the delight. Guys, the good news of the gospel is Jesus has done all the work. He's prepared a place for you. Like if you, by the spirit of God living inside of you, start to imagine what that would be like. It's like, this is God who created the universe, has been spending part of his time preparing a room for you that has your name on the door. Doesn't the anxiety in your heart start to melt? Just thinking about that. It's like he has it under control. Your days are numbered by him. Your room is set up. The rescue mission is planned. He's coming back to get you. So that's good news. Number one. Number two, we see in the text that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Okay, so Thomas is like, okay, back up. You're going to prepare a place for me. Jesus, we don't even know where you're going. So if we don't know where you're going, then how can you know we know the way to where you're going? And Jesus says something that no other religious leader or teacher has ever said or will ever say with any credibility. I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. Jesus, with absolute authority, looks at his disciples and looks at us in a world where everyone is claiming to have the truth, to be able to give us life by following certain steps or a certain path or a certain diet. And he's saying, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have absolute authority and the only way to the Father is through me. So think about this. The way to God, Jesus is saying, is not found in keeping your nose clean or in keeping a set of rules. It is not in being a good little girl or good little boy. It's not in religious performance or even in mysticism, in contemplative prayer. The way to God is Jesus. It is by his finished work that we come into the presence of God. It's not his work inside us. It's his work without us that brings us into the presence of God. And Jesus is telling them that he is the way and we look back and we see the way through the cross. He also says that he is the truth, which means everything Jesus said as he walked on the earth that is recorded for us here is true. It's trustworthy. That takes our anxiety away in this world of news coming at us from every different angle and not knowing which piece of news we can trust, and not knowing which religious leader we can trust, and not knowing which person we can trust, and which person some revelation is going to come up about them that basically everything they said was a facade and a lie. Jesus is saying, in that type of world, you can trust my words. You can bank on what I am saying. I am not lying to you. I am not deceiving you. I have no hidden agenda. My goal is your salvation. And then he makes another third startling claim. I am the life. And we'll see as we flip forward a few pages, we'll get more into this in the Gospel of John. He talks about in John 15 that he is like a vine, and we are like branches. So sap flowing from him to us, to be connected to Jesus organically by his spirit, the way a branch is connected to a vine, is to have life. To be disconnected from Jesus is to be biologically alive, but to be, but to be spiritually dead. And Jesus is saying, if you are connected to me, that is where real life is found. Okay, so immediately as we talk about that, I hope that if you're a believer in Jesus, that you feel immense comfort. 
They are like in this world that is troubling and anxiety producing, that not with pride, but with humility, you say, how have I found this Jesus who gives me such security, gives me such purpose, gives me life itself. But there's also another group of people in the room, those who kind of have one foot in, one foot out, those who aren't sure about the claims of Jesus. And here's what I want you to feel as you're listening to Jesus say this. I want you to feel confronted. Because I think that Jesus does comfort those of us who are believers, but I also think those of us who are unbelievers, he is confronting. He's saying, listen, you can't have one foot in, one foot out. You have to decide. Either I am the way, the truth, and the life, or I'm a crazy person. But you can't take this middle ground that's like, you're a great teacher, but there's also some other really good teachers, religious teachers, that I'm going to kind of keep one ear open to, and I'm kind of going to go like halfway between Christianity and Buddhism, or I'm going halfway in between Christianity and Islam. I'm going to kind of take this relativistic approach that says all the religions lead to the same destination. You have to understand, you cannot have that secular humanist perspective and what Jesus is bringing to us at the same time. Jesus won't let you. He says either you have secular humanism and the crap that is being taught at all these universities, or you have me, but you cannot have both. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And unless we stand with Jesus against our culture and the tide that is coming at us, we have no salvation. It is by faith in him. So yes, it's comforting, but yes, it is also confrontational. Okay, imagine that there was a construction worker standing in the Y of a road. And you drive up to the Y of that road. And he is telling you that if you go to the right side of the Y, that you are going to drive off a cliff. And if you go to the left side of the Y, that is the road to the top of an overlook on the tallest mountain that you've ever been on. And beautiful. Now, if you want to go to the right, and you want to get in a little bit of a fight with that construction worker, that's fine, but you're going to drive off a cliff. It's only if you go to the left that you're going to get to see the majestic view, that you're only going to go to the place that you want to go to. And so that construction worker either provides you with immense comfort, I'm glad he told me to go to the left and not the right, or... He's going to confront your plan to go to the right and you are going to be sort of mad at him for telling you something that you didn't want to hear. Which is it for you with Jesus? Is his claim to be the definite article, only way, truth, and life a comfort to you 
Or is it a confrontation to you? Are you offended by him? Jesus said, blessed are those who are not offended by me. So here's what Jesus says later in the book of Revelation, which I think gets at what he's getting at here. He's saying, make a decision. This is what he said, Revelation 3, 15 through 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. See, when we confront the hard sayings of Jesus, Jesus, because he loves us and wants to bring us comfort, wants us to go from a place of uncertainty and doubt to absolute certainty because he is trustworthy. Okay, so Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The last thing we see in the text is that Jesus is exactly like the Father. Look with me at verses 8 through 11. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Philip, again, gets hung up on something that Jesus is saying. He's like, okay, I get that you're claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life, but I want you to show us what God is like. See, Philip's understanding is that Jesus' purpose in coming was that he was like an arrow pointing to God. And Jesus says, you're misunderstanding Philip. Now, if you notice, there's an irony in what Philip is saying, which I think is revealing to all of us. He says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. The interesting irony is that Lord was a designation that would be used for God alone. So he is saying to Jesus, God, show us what God is like. And Jesus says to him, have you been with me so long, Philip, and you still don't know me? So think about this. Philip has been doing ministry alongside Jesus on the most epic camping trip of all time for three years. And Jesus reveals something that's true, that it's possible to do a lot of ministry activity, to be in all the right places doing all the right things and still be missing it. And he's saying to Philip, you've been walking beside me, you've seen everything that I've done, and yet you're missing this foundational thing. That is, to see me, is to see the Father. Jesus is delving into the mystery of the Trinity 
We believe as Christians that God the Father is God, that God the Son, that's Jesus, is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, and we also believe that there is only one God. And Jesus is saying, I am the one God. To see me is to see the Father. If you want to know what the Father is like, just think about the things that I've been doing. Think about who I am. Think about who I've revealed them, myself to be. That is exactly what the Father is like. Which is of immense comfort to us as believers. Because here's one of the questions that I think a lot of modern people have about the Bible. They read the Old Testament and they think that God was kind of a cranky teenager who went through a phase. And then they get to the New Testament and they see Jesus and they're like, wow, he's wonderful. And Jesus is stopping us from thinking that way by saying, I am exactly like my father. So, the best way, I think, to read the Bible is to reverse engineer it. Because the most clear picture of who God is in the Bible is found in the person of Jesus. So, all of our Bible reading should be done through the lens of who Jesus is. If it doesn't pass, pass the Jesus test, it shouldn't pass our theological test. So Jesus makes the triune God understandable to us so that we see clearly in the person of Jesus and specifically at the cross that God is love. He demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But we also see at the cross that he is just. Because he doesn't sweep our sin under the rug, but instead pays the punishment for our sin in that place. So we look at Jesus to understand and to know who God is most clearly. Have you ever had an experience where you understood something and then you experienced something that made you understand it in a deeper way? I had this experience with my son Luke. I do this trip with all my kids. I'm calling it the fifth grade trip. So when they finish fifth grade, I take them to some place of historical significance and we go and have a blast together. And so I took my son Luke to Washington, D.C., and one of the places that he wanted to go was to Mount Vernon. And so we went to Mount Vernon, and we found out as we were buying the tickets, we didn't know this, that it was Revolutionary War Day at Mount Vernon, which meant that the whole field outside of Mount Vernon, people were going to be dressing as various types of soldiers. It was basically going to be this super exciting thing. And I had this moment at Revolutionary War Day 
with Luke where he's standing watching them reenact these battles that had happened in the Revolutionary War. And he was so excited because they were studying the Revolutionary War at school. But what he was saying as he's watching them reenact it on this field at Mount Vernon was he was saying, I understood it before, but now I get it. He was having this aha excitement moment. This is amazing. I can't wait to go back and tell my teacher about this. I can't wait to go and tell my friends about this because before it was theory and because of this experience, now I know about it. Now I'm excited about it. Jesus is saying that the reason he came was not to make God knowable, but to make God understandable to us. He came to show us exactly what God is like. So if you are at a point of confusion in your relationship with God, maybe there's something that you're tripping over, a doubt, you're tripping over some story in the Old Testament, you're tripping through some reality about God, here's my encouragement to you. Dive into the Gospel of John. Read it. Read it in big chunks. Read it slowly. And here's what I want you to do. Just stare at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. Look at who he is. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's accomplished. Look at his love for you. Look at his justice. Look at his truth speaking. And maybe you'll have the same experience that I've had. Your heart will love him. You will see that he is the very person that you were created to know and to delight in. He's what's missing from your life. And all the pieces of your theology, as you do that, will start to fall in their proper place when you understand that Jesus is the most clear revelation of who God is. Okay, so what do we do with all of this? Jesus tells us what he wants us to do with this comfort in this world of trouble. He says it in John 14, verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, so the application of all this is not just, okay, we can be free from anxiety in a world that is going crazy and troubled in heart. It's better than that. It's that we can be the type of people that are so filled up with confidence in the Spirit of God that we actually begin to have a purpose in our life that is beyond ourselves. that we can serve Jesus with gladness and a whole heart. 
And the only thing that's keeping you from serving Jesus with gladness and a whole heart so that God is working through your life. By the way, when Jesus says that you're going to do greater works than I do, I think what he's saying is, I'm going to fill my church with my spirit. I'm going to send you all out over the face of the whole earth so that there will be little lights of mine lighting up every corner of the planet so that the quantity of works will so far surpass what I did on this earth that it will be amazing. Jesus is calling us to participate in that as the salt and light of the world. And the only thing that's keeping us from that kind of life is asking him. Just asking him. Okay, so let's not, to close the message, talk about asking him. Let's ask him. Would you use us in that way? So here's what I want you simply to do. I want you as an act of sort of submission to God, if that's resonating with you, to just put your hands out right now. To to bow your head, close your eyes. And there's going to be specific things that each of us want to ask God to use us to do. Specific gifts that are specific to each person. But let's just humbly ask him to use us. Um, Jesus, we believe that you are preparing a place for us. We believe that you have made God understandable to us and that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we take you at your word when you say that you want to use us. And so we come before you as a church family and we say, God, would you use us to share the good news of the gospel with our neighbors, to train up our kids to know, love, and follow you, to be sent to the ends of the earth to proclaim your name, to plant churches, to share the good news with our coworkers, to care for those who are poor and needy in our city, to do acts of justice and righteousness as we stand up for those who are oppressed, to be people who are different, not because we're good, but because your life is coursing through our veins. Your spirit is alive in us. Would you send us Jesus to do what we could not possibly do in our own strength or by our own power, but we can only do because you are living in us? Would this prayer continue in our lives and our hearts? for the rest of this week and on for our lives, God, that we would be dependent people. In Jesus' name.